Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Caregiving is not for the faint of heart, and the work takes many forms, from helping someone manage their finances, escorting them to a doctor's appointment, or ordering medications from week to week. Most caregivers become overwhelmed by the experience at some point or another. But for members of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgendered community, the challenges are often made worse by a lack of resources and laws and public policies that favor biological families. So who cares for the LGBT community? And how do LGBT caregivers, who make up an estimated 9% of all unpaid caregivers in the U.S., go about finding support services for themselves? Well, we're going to talk about that and more today. I'm joined by Bethany Henderson, a licensed social worker who heads up the Caring and Preparing Program at the LGBT Health Resource Center at Chase Brexton Healthcare in Baltimore, Maryland. The Center's Caring and Preparing, or CAP, program is funded by the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation and is a duplicate of the successful CAP program developed by the folks at SAGE, the Center's partner in this project. SAGE, by the way, stands for Services and Advocacy for Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, and Transgender Elders. And that's where the acronyms end, unless Bethany has a few more for us. Bethany Henderson, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Before we get into the specifics of the CAP program, can you tell us a little bit about the LGBT Health Resource Center and its mission? Sure. So the LGBT Health Resource Center of Chase Brixton Healthcare, their purpose is to provide lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer individuals and their families and loved ones with welcoming access to expert health information and resources that enhance wellness and quality of life. And how long has it been around? We opened our doors October 8th of 2015. So relatively new. Very new. And how has it changed in terms of serving the larger community over the years, over the months, if at all? Baltimore City has a variety of different LGBT organizations, Mm -hmm. and what the LGBT Health Resource Center has done is looked at different subpopulations of the LGBT community to see who is not being served and what programs and services are not being offered, not only in Baltimore City, but Maryland as a whole. So the SAGECAP program is one of those programs but we also started a program called Gender Joy, which stands for Gender Journeys of Youth, providing health care services and mental health services for transgender and gender diverse young folks, children and adolescents. And then we also have an LGBT Young Professionals Network that helps with professional development. Hmm. And we're also trying to streamline LGBT education and training to different health providers, aging providers, and um, community service providers as a whole. Okay. So let's get into the Caring and Preparing Program. When did it start? How does it work? Sure. 
so we launched the Caring and Preparing program on September 11th, 2015, but I have been working on this project since January of last year, but we launched September 11th. What the model is, is it's free services for anybody in the community. They do not have to be a patient of Chase Brexton to be involved in the program, but we offer free counseling, short-term case management, monthly lunch and learn workshops, LGBT caregiver support groups twice a month, and information and referrals to LGBT affirming aging services. And then we also provide education and training to aging service providers in the state of Maryland. The eligibility criteria is any person that identifies as LGBT and is 50 years or older, or anyone that identifies as a caregiver who is either LGBT or caring for someone who is LGBT. Okay, so this is a situation where being 50 or older is a benefit for joining. Yes, and I don't, I don't think of 50 as an older adult, but in Baltimore City, there are places in the city where the life expectancy is lower than average. Mm-hmm. And also, we see a lot of different barriers when you look at intersectionality and you look at being part of the LGBT community and also a person of color or someone of lower socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. And so different identities can really layer on and life expectancy can be lower. So we do 50 and over to encompass more people. Mm-hmm. Now, can you talk a little bit about what sort of discrimination LGBT folks face in the medical system generally? Sure. Well, discrimination in a medical setting could be anything from a provider not providing holistic care. So it may be seeing someone for a shorter time than the provider usually would see someone. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times the discrimination we see in healthcare, especially for transgender and gender diverse folks, would be misgendering someone, calling someone by their legal name instead of the name that they have given themselves if their name has not been changed on documents, or calling someone by a pronoun based on what someone looks like instead of who they are inside, how they identify. It could be refusing to bring a caregiver in on medical conversations based on a same-sex couple or not letting a caregiver be in on a medical plan because the person may not be part of their family of origin. I know some people say biological family, but it would be the family that is legally in charge. A lot of LGBT folks don't even come in through the doors into medical services because of fear of discrimination, because of access issues. A lot of people are not informed on what their insurance covers a lot of the time Mm -hmm. and for fear of being outed is Mm -hmm. another thing as well. We're a neighborhood clinic where we have six or seven different sites and serve over 28,000 patients, but at the same time, our Baltimore City location has a very neighborhood feel, and if someone is not out, but then it seeing maybe coming through the doors to our LGBT Health Resource Center can easily be outed. And so someone may be very scared to even go through those doors mm-hmm. because of that fear. So those are just a couple ways that discrimination is faced mm-hmm. with the, the medical system. Most of it is just a lack of cultural competency in the healthcare system, whether mm-hmm. it's doctors all the way to like front desk people. Uh-huh. So how is your sort of, for lack of a better word, how is your education of the medical professionals going along in terms of sensitizing them? Not that they're not 
on occasion or maybe regularly in some places sensitive to the needs of the LGBT community. What is it like to go into a medical setting where you've been asked or you feel the need to train the professionals? How does that go? It goes a lot easier than sometimes I think it will. Mm-hmm. I feel like LGBT cultural competency is a hot topic these days. Washington, D.C. just passed a cultural competency bill stating that any federally qualified health center, health center receiving federal funds, the providers there need to have LGBT cultural competency as part of their education credits. Mm -hmm. But we have an education coordinator that works at the LGBT Health Resource Center that's in charge of most of our LGBT cultural competency trainings and then any of them that are specifically regarding LGBT older adults and caregiving, I usually take on. But we have so many people and organizations from health insurance providers to hospitals, medical schools, and smaller clinics asking us to come in. And a lot of it is people will have questions mostly on like language. Mm -hmm. And they'll be like, I feel like I can't keep track of all the different identities out there. How am I supposed to know what kind of language to use? And a lot of it is just validating and saying, you don't need to know every single word. What's most important is that you respect the identity that someone brings or identities and mirror the language that they're using. So if someone comes in and says, I'm pansexual, it probably is good to have knowledge of what that might mean. But we like to train providers in communicating and being comfortable asking Mm -hmm. what that means. And what does that mean for people who are listening that don't know? Sure. Pansexual is a more encompassing term than bisexual, meaning that someone is attracted either sexually, romantically, and or emotionally to many genders, whereas bisexual really focuses more on male-female. Okay. Uh, And that's the perfect question, and that's something that we train providers. It's just it's okay to ask. Uh Same with pronouns is a big thing. We talk about how to ask folks what pronouns they use. Whether it's she, her, his, him, they, them, or something else, or no pronouns at all. And also talking about how to make your clinic or your organization more affirming. So maybe that means providing LGBT community organization flyers. Mm-hmm. or services. You know, maybe there's some kind of anti-discrimination sign in your waiting room that specifically states you don't discriminate based on sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. Mm-hmm. So it's giving providers tips, but it's also talking to them about the different health disparities that LGBT folks face that are different than the general population and why it is so important using terms like significant other mm-hmm. instead of husband, wife, using gender-neutral terminology if you don't know who a person's significant other is or their gender, and also feeling comfortable asking for that demographic information, for asking sexual orientation and gender identity information mm-hmm. and what that means. Mm-hmm. So. Are you being met with resistance or with welcoming arms or both generally? Most of the time, we're being welcomed openly. There may be some people that have a harder time wrapping their heads around, especially around gender identity Mm -hmm. and what does it mean to be transgender because a lot of people only know about Caitlyn Jenner and can get really confused by some of the mixed messages she has been putting out there Mm -hmm. in the media. But we talk about how one person does not 
define a whole group and that gender identity, sexual orientation, everyone has it and it's individualized to everyone. So it's more so how to talk about it and how to mirror the language and how to use affirming, validating language. Mm -hmm. I've seen statistics also that show that also, for instance, like in assisted living centers that are grappling with this issue for folks who want to come in that are not straight. And I'm reading that the education is welcome because people are at a loss. Well, assisted living is a whole nother beast. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. So that is um, that is something that we are starting mm-hmm. is to look into assisted living and nursing homes. Right now, we've just been doing basic medical providers. I'm on a LGBT older adult task force in Howard County, Maryland, and they have a group that is going to different assisted living places and senior centers and talking to them about the importance of getting trained in LGBT affirming competency myself and Alex Kent, who is our replication coordinator here who works for SAGE. The two of us have gone in and talked to them about how to talk to assisted livings, what kind of questions to ask, and there's a group that's starting that. Mm -hmm. We would love to start it in Baltimore City. We are a staff of three in the SAGE CAP program, Mm -hmm. so it's it's a big fish to fry, but we've been doing more of the overarching. We've trained all of the Maryland State Ombudsmen who work with the nursing homes, and all of the Maryland State Association of Information and Referral Services who work with the Department of Aging and Disabilities, Mm -hmm. too, who Mm -hmm. make a lot of referrals to assisted living and nursing homes. Actually, the LGBT National Resource Center on Aging and SAGE have booklets that can be given to different aging providers that talk about how to make your aging organization more LGBT affirming and friendly, and it gives little tips and tricks, and you can actually find that on SAGE's website. Mm -hmm. So we, a lot of times, are using that as a go-to for assisted living and nursing homes and other aging providers that we haven't trained yet, use that as a tool for them Mm -hmm. in the meantime. Mm -hmm. Compared with the rest of the population, LGBT older adults have uh, higher rates of depression, alcohol, and Mm -hmm. drug abuse, and they have a a host of unmanaged chronic diseases that go untreated. What's different about these older adults versus the younger LGBT population? Can you talk about how they approach health care issues versus the younger generation? Sure. LGBT older adults are more of an invisible population. The LGBT community as a whole has a history of being incredibly ageist. And there are some, I mean, there's been some jokes of like, once you hit 30, you're an old person now or something like so a lot of times older adults are extremely isolated there aren't services a lot of the services are focused on youth lgbt folks in the media are Mm youth-centric and so sometimes when you don't have people that look like you or identify the same way as you and you can't find services that are geared towards you so marketing material that only has like two men holding hands, but they're in their 30s or they're in their early 20s, it's going to be hard for an LGBT older adult to identify with those services. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the high rate of depression and chronic disease stems from isolation a lot of the times. We know that socialization and engagement can actually be beneficial and decrease percentages of chronic disease and can make people feel better and more well. So one of the things that I have been working on with our HIV community here is to do some marketing around PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis, Mm 
mm-hmm. which is a HIV medication that people that are not living with HIV can take as a preventative tool to decrease the odds of getting HIV or being infected with HIV. Mm-hmm. So it's all geared toward young gay, bisexual, and same-gender-loving men and trans women, but older people are having sex, too, and I've been kind of pushing for a lot of our HIV prevention materials to have older folks on there, Mm -hmm. so that way it can increase testing and also increase the use of PrEP among older folks. So I think that's one of the biggest barriers. Another barrier is a lot of providers aren't specializing in geriatrics, so that can also be a deterrent for older adults to come to an LGBT-affirming clinic if there isn't a geriatrician on board or if there isn't someone who is competent in health issues that are age-appropriate, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So. And that applies to the larger community, the larger population too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, older LGBT uh, folks came of age during a really different social landscape than one, than the one we see today. So I'm wondering if they're reluctant to even take advantage of some of the services that you have. Have you found that? Absolutely. We talked about discrimination earlier, and we're talking about folks who lived during the McCarthy era where people could get fired from their jobs for just an assumption that they were gay or transgender. People today, not in Maryland, but in other states, people can get fired today. But back in the 50s and 60s, you had McCarthyism. You had also people that were in the military who were being discharged dishonorably for being gay. And then you're also coming at a time where there were the Stonewall riots. So we saw our first big uprising, and this is where pride started. And you have young people now who have no idea the history of pride, and they think pride is one big party. And it can be really frustrating for older adults who lived through these different eras who fought to be who they were. And a lot of them are going back in the closet because places like assisted living and nursing homes are still not very friendly and They have a whole history of discrimination leading up to today, but they don't trust public services at Mm -hmm. all. And then you add on LGBT folks of color, and not only did people go through discrimination based on being lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender, but also discrimination based on their race. Mm -hmm. So you have layers upon layers of discrimination. So today, I still see people who come to me knowing that we are working with LGBT older adults who still will not say, you know, my significant other or my partner, Hmm. but instead will tell me, you know, my roommate or my friend, Hmm. because there's still this distrust. And you're serving specifically their community. Yes. And it can take a couple times and people will eventually come out. I've also had some folks who waited until parents died to come out as transgender. So there's a lot of people who are either going back into the closet due to discrimination, especially a lot with things that are being said at a national political level. And then also what we see things happening in like North Carolina and the South with these anti-LGBT bills, it triggers a historical context in some of the older adults we're seeing. Right. Can you give an example of someone that fits that profile that came through your doors without naming names and how the relationship evolved, if it evolved in a positive way? Sure. Most people will tell me their 
sexual orientation or gender identity up front, but may take longer to talk about relationships. I used the example already a little bit, but I did have someone who came to me identifying one way and was cisgender, which means non-transgender, someone who is not transgender. So does that mean they're straight? So that, or... so that means that my sex assigned at birth matches my gender identity. I identify as cisgender. My sex assigned at birth was female. That's what the doctor put on my birth certificate, and I, de- I identify as a woman. So my gender identity and my sex assigned at birth are aligned. Mm-hmm. So that means that I'm cisgender or I'm not transgender. Transgender is an overarching umbrella of different gender identities that your sex assigned at birth may not be aligned with your gender identity. I did have someone who came to me identifying one way as a cisgender man and then a couple months later came in fully dressed with their gender expression very feminine and came out and said, I'm a woman. I waited until um, their parent died and felt that they were able to fully express who they truly were. Hmm. And I was like, whoa, I did not know this about this person at all. And we've been meeting every week for the past couple months. So now we're working with her to get her connected to a lot of trans support groups and working on some legal stuff with her and getting her into medical care. And she just started hormones and is so happy. So that's a a really positive experience that this person was able to just show up one day being who they were and everyone just welcomed her with open arms because she was able to be exactly who she was. And we see that a lot with older adults who have been in different relationships with the opposite sex, have had children in those marriages and then got divorced, either waited until the kids moved away and were adults and then able to feel like they could be out at age 50 or age 60 mm-hmm. for the first time. And then we have people who are still very uncomfortable being who they are out in public, but come to us and come to our caregiving support groups, come to our monthly lunch and learns, get to be amongst folks who are also part of the LGBT community and also are older as well, but they may not want their picture taken and posted publicly at one of the community events mm-hmm. um, because they're not out mm-hmm. in public, but mm-hmm. they're able to still build community here, which is what we encourage. Right. Tell us about those lunch and learns. What sort of topics are covered? We actually, this month, April 16th is National Healthcare Decision Day. So our second Thursday of the month, we do a lunch and learn workshop where we provide free lunch and bring someone in from the community to talk about something. So on the 14th, we're going to be bringing in someone from Howard County's Department of Aging to talk about advanced directives, Mm -hmm. to talk about the importance of why LGBT folks should probably have healthcare directives in place before something happens. So this is that preparing part of the Caring and Preparing Program. Mm -hmm. And we're actually offering this uh, workshop. This is special. So we're going to offer it to all LGBT folks 18 and over because... We know that family of choice is not legally recognized in many cases, even though we have marriage equality. Not everyone is married to their significant other. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people are are providing care for loved ones that could include friends and neighbors and significant others that they aren't legally tied to. So we want to make sure that they have their health care directives in place. So if something was to happen and they weren't able to make a decision for themselves, the person caring for them or the the person they want to care for them is able to do that 
instead of it maybe being a family member in Oklahoma City that they haven't spoken to in 20 years. Mm-hmm. So we're doing that as a, lunch, a special lunch and learn workshop. Some of our past ones have included, we had the Equal Rights Center in Washington, D.C. come and do a workshop on fair housing and discrimination issues that LGBT people might face when looking for housing. And that was one that a lot of people were very interested in. Mm -hmm. We've also done some financial planning workshops uh, where we brought PNC Bank in. And all these people that we're bringing in either are from an LGBT employee resource group at their company or identify as in the LGBT community themselves. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure that it's LGBT affirming and it's someone that really understands the community. Yeah. And how are you reaching the actual folks who come to these events? How are you marketing to them? So we have a citywide LGBT newspaper mm-hmm. uh, that publicizes our events quite frequently. I also am constantly sending out email blasts to all the LGBT organizations here in Mm -hmm. um, Baltimore City and Maryland. I sit on a couple of aging service community advisory boards. One of them is with Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center, Mm -hmm. which is a bunch of different partners coming together under a larger grant. So I'm usually sending out our lunch and learns to them so they can pass them on to their providers to send to people. The LGBT Health Resource Center puts together a monthly e-newsletter that we send out to our mailing list, which I think is now at like eight, 700, 800 people. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of our community listservs that we post the events to as well. Mm-hmm. So we usually have on average 18 to 20 people, which is the perfect group to have. If it's bigger, I'm not going to complain, <laughs> but <laughs> it's a good group of people I've seen people exchange phone numbers after a lunch and learn workshop. The same thing happens with our caregiver groups as people exchange information. They go out to lunch together. They check in on one another. And that's one of the things that I see as a goal of the lunch and learn. It's not just only to learn this topic, but also to get people out of isolation and build community. So people who may not have anyone. LGBT older adults are twice as likely to live alone, less likely to have children. So a lot of times they're living by themselves with nobody. And so coming once a month to these lunch and learns creates an opportunity for them to meet other people that are in their age range that identify as LGBT and to hopefully create some friendship. Mm -hmm. Because we see a lot, especially with caregivers, that people are kind of caring for each other and aging together as a network which has its pros and cons where when people are aging together, they're aging together with a variety of different health issues. And if you're caring for one another, you're not usually going to be taking care of yourself. We call it like the golden girls model of like everyone aging together, maybe not living together, but definitely are caring together in a network. But at the same time, as people are aging, some people are going to be hospitalized. And what happens when that one person is left to not have anyone to care for them? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. older adults have been making their own families for years. And we're hoping that through the SageCap program, we're able to bring folks who don't have family, any kind of family or family of choice, and build one through the SageCap program. Mm-hmm. How is going to a support group different for LGBT people as opposed to non-LGBT individuals? One of the things that someone had told me is they went to a caregiver support group that was for the general population. And when she talked about the struggles that she had caring for her partner or for her wife, 
everyone focused on, uh, wanted to validate her and wanted to talk about her sexual orientation. (laughs) And she's like, I'm not here to talk about my sexual orientation. I just want to talk about the stress I'm having as a caregiver. One of the things that we offer here is that no one's going to be focusing on your sexual orientation or gender identity because everyone is part of the LGBT community and it's more focused on the caregiving issues and don't have to worry about people either feeling like they have to be validated or like, wow, you're so brave. And people are probably coming from a good place, but that's not what that person needs. Mm. Or the fear of feeling like they're not going to be able to fit in. So Uh we're creating more of a safer space for folks. Uh Another person had told me that they were scared that if they talked about their struggles in their marriage as also taking the role of a caregiver, that they didn't want to be a failure of marriage equality. Hmm, They didn't want the onus on them for that. So yeah, there are some unique issues. So we've created this group that can come together to talk about whatever they want to talk about. Mm -hmm. What sort of other factors can present difficulties for LGBT caregiving? I'm thinking that, you know, what if an aging parent moves in with a gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender child? You know, the, the emotional and the logistical complications that can arise. Right. So we do see more LGBT people caring for their parents. And one of the reasons is you may have, like as a gay man, you may have two siblings who are both married with children and the two siblings are like, oh, well, Bob can take care of mom because we have families and Bob has more time to take care of mom. So mom moves in with Bob and maybe mom hasn't really talked to Bob in like seven or eight years because she may not be okay with him being gay. And so Bob feels an obligation to take care of his mother because a lot of times we do hear that caregiving is an obligation Mm -hmm. um, or that I have to do this because I was parented as a child. It's my turn to give back to my parents. And we see people who have been estranged from their parents who are now taking care of them again. And there is tension. There are parents that still don't accept their kids who's taking care of them. And some of that can be side comments, passive aggressive behavior while the person is taking care of the parent. We work with some transgender folks who are caring for parents with dementia Mm -hmm. and the parents will misgender their child Mm -hmm. or will misgender the person and not do it maliciously, but because of someone that is suffering with Alzheimer's, their memory isn't that great. Mm -hmm. And so they remember their child as a daughter who is now their son, but they'll continuously call the person by their given name at birth or will use pronouns based on their sex assigned at birth. So that is very common as well. That is different than probably a caregiving relationship for the general population. Right, which is hard enough to begin with. Yeah, and even though someone may say, I know that my mother isn't doing this on purpose, but it still takes a toll. And to have to remind my mom, like, of my name every day, multiple times a day, that really can take an emotional toll on that person who is also facing stigma as a trans person in other facets of their life. Mm-hmm. So do you have respite for these caregivers as well? I so wish that we had respite. So we do, in Maryland, have respite. We do not have enough of it, but mm-hmm. I have worked with some folks to apply for grants to be able to get some respite care so they can get some professional health home aid in. We do some social events where we encourage caregivers and care recipients to come and do things together. We've done movie days. 
We actually just, I think it was last month, had an artist come, and we have a gallery at Chase Brexton that focuses on transgender and gender diverse um, older adults, their portrait and their stories. And so we invited everyone to come. But in terms of respite, I'm actually went to like an all day discussion group on respite care in Maryland and how we can make it better. And it's tough. A lot of places in the United States are struggling with it mm-hmm. and not getting enough money. And so a lot of it is doing a lot of advocacy work at the state and national level for policies. But we are trying to see if there are different ways we can provide respite. One of the things that we're looking at is we were looking at folks who are having gender-affirming surgery that need someone to care for them afterward. Uh If we can put together like a volunteer base to help caregivers and help folks who need caregiving. But it's a long process, and it's a big program to put together. Yeah, Yeah. all across the country. Yeah. So do you have personal experience with caring for someone in your own family? I do not. Um, (laughs) I I am one of those folks that will be filling out an advanced directive for my family of choice. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. But my partner has been doing some Mm -hmm. long-distance caregiving for Mm -hmm. her father, who has been through second round of cancer treatment. So I've been the support for the caregiver. And where does he live? He lives over on the West Coast or on the like Western United States. Mm -hmm. So, and he's doing great now, but Mm -hmm. you know, there was a time where she was flying back to take care of him and providing a lot of support over the phone. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. and that's another thing with caregivers is we provide a lot of the emotional support for them to be able to come and vent or talk about how they're feeling. And so I got to use my tools that I do here for my loved one. Yeah. Myself, I do not have caregiving experience. You will. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. One in four LGBT. As opposed to one in five in the general population, right? And that that is probably because, as you said earlier, siblings are more likely to be married and have children of their own, right? I mean... Right. And uh, a lot of LGBT folks are making their own families Mm -hmm. and, and even caring for their exes, too. We see that a lot because Mm -hmm. they're caring for exes because the ex, the only other option is probably someone they hadn't spoken to in like 15 years. So that's um, that's another thing. Look, you can be estranged from your siblings or your parents, even if you're straight, but um, probably more likely, well, depending on what generation your parents are from. Mm -hmm. um, And where you live. And where you live, exactly. So what changes have you seen for the better through the work that you've been doing with the SageCat program? I have seen more caregivers actually putting forth their own medical needs. So we are able to connect them to either uh, primary care or, or ongoing mental health and also working on with them to provide themselves with their own self-care as well. Mm-hmm. So from them seeing us, we are the ones that navigate their health care for them. So mm-hmm. they get into care and they're more likely to get the preventative services they need, whether it's like a colonoscopy or an eye screening or some other preventative screening that they would have foregone because of their caregiving needs. We've seen people who have social anxiety disorder, a lot of it due to discrimination issues and, you know, the history of discrimination in the LGBT community, that they're actually like coming to group and talking to other people in their community and getting out of isolation, which is huge. And we're seeing a lot more people who want to volunteer with us. And right now we're like, oh, we're, we're working with all these folks, but we need to figure out how we can use volunteers. So it may be that like they've gotten 
what they need, and now they want to give back and volunteer. Mm -hmm. And also, we've seen just people who are able to be themselves, people who are out living life and are just happier. Someone comes in for the first time and feels like they have nowhere to go and feels like things aren't going to work for them. And then they come back a couple months later and they're a new person. Wow. So those are a couple of the different things. And also we're seeing, even though there's a lot of anti-LGBT bills coming across state legislation, we're seeing some good progress with like Washington, D.C. and their cultural competency bill. Maryland, we've passed anti-discrimination laws, so you can't discriminate folks based on their sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. Mm -hmm. So in Maryland, we're doing pretty well when it comes to the anti-discrimination stuff Mm -hmm. um, for LGBT issues. Mm -hmm. Maryland's Um, one of the more liberal states in the country. Progressive. Yeah. Progressive, (laughs) for sure. But yeah, and we're seeing the SageCap program flourish. We're getting more people coming in every month more people who want to, you know, expand the program and make it bigger. You know, we're probably going to expand our caregiver support groups soon. This summer, we're going to be doing more social activities to get people out of the house, to get care recipients that are able to leave the house and are well enough to be able to come and do some fun things with the caregivers, like take them on a trip to the museum or maybe take them to the farmer's market. And so we're trying to do what the community wants. Mm-hmm. We're constantly asking input from the people that come and receive our services. What are things that you want to see from the SageCap program? Because we have a lot of room to grow in many different areas. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing that this is a somewhat unique program in the nation. Is this the sort of program that can be replicated elsewhere? And do you anticipate the program expanding to other cities? So that is something that our employee of SAGE, Alex Kent, is in charge of doing. Mm -hmm. And actually, so the SAGE CAP program was a program of SAGE, but we are the first kind of, we're a -a one-of-a-kind program. We are the first SAGE program that is located in a healthcare facility or within a healthcare facility. So I would love to see this implemented elsewhere. I think one of the things that would be our next step possibly is to expand it to our other locations. So right now it's just in Baltimore City. However, we can also do phone consultations for places elsewhere in Maryland. But I would love to see it go to all the other different counties that Chase Brexton is in and see how that flourishes there and then see if it can expand out. Mm -hmm. But I think that it is completely doable. I can see this at, you know, LGBT affirming healthcare clinics in the United States because the reality is we have about one and a half million LGBT older adults living here now, but within like the next 14 or 15 years, it's going to double. Yes, in the United States, 1.5 million, right? Yeah. And so it'll be about like 3 million by like 2030. So we're going to need more services for LGBT older adults. So we're hoping that other people are able to take on these services and realize that as much as our LGBT youth need services too, we can't forget our elders. Because I think of this all the time, like, I wouldn't be able to be who I am today and be out with my partner and being able to be myself if it wasn't for my elders and if it wasn't for the people who paved the way before me. So we need to think about giving back. And this is a great way to do it. What would you say to an LGBT person listening to this about where to access resources? In other words, where can people go for more information? If you are in Baltimore City or Maryland, you can go to resourcecenter.lgbt. 
and that is where you can find the SAGECAP program. I also encourage people to go to SAGE, Services and Advocacy for GLBT Elders. They are a national organization, and they have many affiliate sites. So there may be an affiliate site close to where you are that may be able to provide services for you. And also the National Resource Center on LGBT Aging. They have lots of different information for caregivers, for older adults regarding many different issues, and also they have training and education for providers as well. And what would you say to a non-LGBT person about the LGBT caregiving experience? I would say that if you're an aging services provider, LGBT people are utilizing your services, whether they have come out to you or not. So I encourage you to seek out information regarding LGBT caregiving and regarding, you know, health disparities faced by LGBT folks and provide resources and information based on whatever LGBT organization is closest by, by wherever you are regionally. But make LGBT health information available at your organizations. For people in general, I would say what I would say to anyone I'm training, respect folks, make sure that you use the language that they're using and the correct pronouns, and also if it is someone who is your friend who is LGBT and is a caregiver, provide a listening ear whenever possible. Great. Are there any last thoughts you'd like to leave the listeners with, Bethany, before we sign off? One of the quotes that I hear from our LGBT Older Adult Task Force of Howard County is that we need to make the invisible visible, and that's who LGBT older adults are. That's the main point, making sure that we know that we don't forget about our elders. Mm -hmm. Amen. Well said. Bethany Henderson, she's the program manager for the innovative and much-needed Caring and Preparing Program at the LGBT Health Resource Center at Chase Brexton Healthcare in Baltimore, Maryland. Bethany, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. I'd love to know what you thought of the episode. You can email me at Jana at agewise.com. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z or Z, as my Canadian mother says. You can also find me online at agewise.com and listen to this podcast and lots of other fresh ones on the Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand radio network that's always on for you. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. Until then, age well, age wise.